Well, all right. Good evening, saints. We are in our fourth night. Tonight we are going to cover chapter 31, verses 15 through 28. This is the fourth night out of five special teaching nights. Yeah. To spend five nights on Jeremiah 30 through 31 uh, might seem like an inappropriate use of time for some. But oddly, while the average Christian is familiar with the term New Covenant, almost none have any idea of the context of the term as it appears in the biblical story. Our hope is that you're gaining insight into the riches and the depths of the plan of God that is completely centered on the nation of Israel. We're familiar with terms like co-heir, but it's equally important to know what they are the heirs of. Our nights have been divided as follows. Night one, two, three. We're in night four tonight, and next Monday will be night five as you see them divided on the screen. We're going to review seven items from each of the teaching nights so far. That means that we're about to go through 21 total items of review. This should serve you in two ways. First, the items of review represent the minimal level of what you should be comprehending from our times together. And they serve as a reminder of that review. Second, the items of review are necessary for you to properly connect what you are about to receive tonight. As we get into these 21 points of review... I want to highly recommend to you that you take pictures of the screens, that you jot down notes, and above all, that you focus and ask the Lord to give you wisdom and understanding. This is not the average Bible study where Jesus or the Holy Spirit is every answer to every question. And we want to move beyond nominal Christianity and actually understand what we're participating in. All right, let's move into our recap of night one. We have a slide for you so that you can take pictures, remember these things, review them. Our first point of review from night one, we discovered connections between the name of God and the nature of his word in verses one through three. You guys remember how the word came to Jeremiah and who God is in Exodus? This is to illustrate that God doesn't change or modify his word or promises any more than his own character can be changed or modified. His word is his character. Our second point of review, we also discovered that there is a book of consolation, a book within a book, in verses 1 through 3. The major thesis of the book of consolation is the reunification and salvation of the house of Israel. The new covenant must be seen in this context. Consolation. Our third point of review. We saw Jeremiah, who afflicted the comfortable, begin to comfort the afflicted. Come on. We saw this in verse 3. This highlighted the desire of God to perfect his people as a contiguous theme throughout the Older and Newer Testament. He wants to perfect his nation, y'all. Our fourth point of review. We covered in great depth the certainty of the reunification of Israel 
and Judah as one restored nation. We saw that in verse 4 of Jeremiah 30. This is one of the primary, primary, not secondary, primary promises of the newer covenant. And it cannot be redacted, reduced, or redefined simply because our present circumstances do not seem favorable to the completion of this promise. There are no lost ten tribes. This is a certainty in biblical prophecy. Our fifth point of review. In verse 7, we were reacquainted with the unparalleled uniqueness of the time of Jacob's trouble. And the ancient nature of this prediction that goes as far back as Enoch the seventh from Adam. That's a long time. This was to free you from the natural desire. Say natural desire. Natural desire. The natural desire to see spurious fulfillments in historical events that do, in fact, have parallels. From Enoch to Jude, the Bible promises that this labor, these labor pains, will be unique in all of history. They will be unparalleled, and they will be followed by salvation of the nation of Israel in an equally unique way. Now, our sixth point of review in verse 9, we discovered the intricate beauty of the David and David's son as king scenario. Wow. And how Psalm 110, as well as the life of Solomon in 1 Kings, affected our understanding. This served to enrich your understanding of Yeshua's statement that one greater than Solomon is here. Yeah. That means so much more for us now, doesn't it? Yeah. And last but not least, our seventh point of review. In verses 5 and 6 of Jeremiah chapter 30, we reminded you of the pattern of prophetic progression that is so prevalent throughout the prophets. We first identified the pattern in Jeremiah 6 as seen on the slide on the screen. Okay, check this out. This is your pattern of prophetic progression. Are you guys realizing just how important this progression this progression is as we go through Jeremiah? Yeah. You guys getting that progressive revelation along with us? Yeah. It goes like this. In Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 22, we had an army that was attacking from the north. As you move into verse 24, you saw labor pains. And then later on in verse 26 of Jeremiah chapter 6, there was mourning for an only son. You know, this is not the only time that this occurs in the scripture. Our next slide has some examples of that. We want to paint for you and remind you of the way that we painted a profound picture with this pattern. So around 700 BC, Amos talked to us about the pattern in Amos chapter 8 and verse 10. In 600, where we just went over, was when Jeremiah talked to us about it in Jeremiah chapter 6. 100 years later, in the book of Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah had the same pattern in Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through 11. And then in A.D. 30, Jesus also talked to us about that same pattern in Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 through 8. Wasn't night one amazing? Yeah, yeah. Let's move on to night two and recap. This is from Jeremiah 30, verses 12 through 21. You'll see these seven things we are going to review up on the screen. Number one being no remedy. As 2 Chronicles 36, 15 through 16 said, there was no remedy. Say no remedy. No remedy. No way to avoid what must occur as labor pains that would produce the newer covenant, covenant announcement. The events had been predicted predicted as far back as Enoch and would occur as a repeating pattern throughout history until their final 
a nation born of the Spirit. The nation was birthed in water and must be birthed in the Spirit. So, so must individuals. This is the proper context of, of the Exodus. Ezekiel 37, Jeremiah 32-31, and of course, Yeshua's conversation with Nicodemus and John 3. Are you guys following that? Number three, the elimination of rival lovers. All of Israel's adulterous lovers, the ones she found false security in, will be eliminated prior to the lavish national salvation. Trouble comes upon the nation while they say peace and security. And comfort comes upon the nation while they are travailing in labor that produces salvation. Come on. And our fourth recap, we have great guilt acknowledged and atoned. The father asked a profound question in Jeremiah 30, 15. Do you guys remember? Why are you crying? Why are you crying? Of course, he knew the answer, uh, but he was looking for the national acknowledgement of guilt that must come prior to the salvation of the nation. <laughs> in point five, we have the destruction of the destroyers. It is shocking for most Christians to realize that the completion of the newer covenant will not occur until after the destroyers of Israel themselves are destroyed. The promise of a renewed creation are predicated upon the removal of the ancient national adversaries of Israel. In point six, the healing to the sons. In Jeremiah 30, 17 through 20, it declares that healing will come to Israel and their sons. This promise is enigmatically linked to the mysterious prophesied leader who is one of their own and who is worthy to draw near. It is beautiful to see this promise beginning in Yeshua and will be even more beautiful to see its completion in the days to come. Amen? Amen. And in seven, our overview of Jacob's trouble, we have a slide for you to look at. In verse 15, we have discipline. In verse 16, we have protection. In 17, healing. 18, compassion. 19, thanksgiving and increase. 20, an established community. In verse 21, the promised ruler. Yeah. All right. You guys still with me? Yes. You're not falling asleep in the middle of a recap, are you? Were you blessed by last week? Yes. And let me recap a few of the points from last week with you. Because it was just, you know, a forgettable Bible study. One, one that you would have seen on TV anywhere. So our first point is Israel, the chosen or the elect nation. That was stated clearly in the Peshat in Jeremiah 30, verse 22. I'm going to put a few slides up that we've shown you before that we'll walk through together briefly, but to refresh your memory on it because it is critical to understanding any part of the Bible, whether we're speaking about Jeremiah or any other New Testament, any New Testament writing. Let's go ahead and go to our first slide. All right, you guys remember this LXX clipping? Yeah. The seed of Israel, his servants, sons of Jacob, his... Chosen. Chosen. Strong's number 15880. This is its only occurrence in the Elder Testament. Let's roll forward to the slide about it. Electros. It means exactly what you would think it means. A select chosen group of people. Then we went on to plug this in to passages in the New Testament and lend a greater understanding. So in Ephesians 1... For he chose Israel in him before the creation of the world. Guys, do you see how that clearly fits the context of the passage? Yes. 
to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ in advance with his pleasure and will. And when you understand the context of the Bible, it clears up so many doctrinal issues. Yeah. Let's look at it in 2 Timothy 2. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of Israel, the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Who's writing here, saints? Paul. All right, what was Paul's nationality? Ethnically, he's Jewish. What was his nationality? He's Israel, Israeli. He was longing to see God's elect receive what he was preaching about. Maybe it's just an isolated incident. Romans 11, 28. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election, Israel is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. So when he says loved on account of the patriarchs, he quite clearly means uh, a South American tribe, right? Nope. Because that's the patriarchs we have recorded. No. Putting Israel as the center of the gospel and us as a mysterious inclusion helps you understand every part of the word. Our second point of review was that there was a coming storm. You guys remember that? The storm would protect and deliver Israel. This came from chapter 30, verse 23. This is the consistent imagery in the scriptural narrative. All the way throughout the word, throughout the Tanakh. We even examine passages like Exodus 19, Deuteronomy 33, Judges 5, 2 Samuel 22, Ezekiel 34, Job 2, Zephaniah 1, Psalm 97. Those were just the passages we picked out of the Tanakh. Not at all the only ones you could choose. This imagery was intended to carry through into the Newer Testament in passages like Matthew 24, Matthew 26, Revelation 1. Saints, this ought to dramatically inform any proper view of the return of Christ or biblical eschatology. This is what it looks like for him to return. But you've never seen that in a painting, have you? Dark storm clouds approaching? Hey, we're learning to see things as the Bible describes them. Our third point of review, the sword and the sieve. We had a penitent remnant from Jeremiah 31, verse 2, part A. Those that survived the sword, as it says. The process of labor pains and the accompanying sword effectively eliminated sinners from among the bride nation that is Israel, from among that bride nation, so that the penitent remnant in all Israel would be saved. Guys, this was illustrated in passages like Amos 9, Isaiah 1, specifically verse 27, Zechariah 12, Romans 11. It's a consistent theme that a sword would come and that a sieve would shake out sinners, but there would be a holy remnant. And that remnant is then called all Israel because the sinners were removed. Now on that note, our first fourth point of review, the pierced one speaks to the penitent nation. So all Israel that has been purified, the pierced one speaks to them from Jeremiah 31 verse three. And what was perhaps one of the sweetest of revelations given to us in recent times. And we don't say that just on your end. One of the sweetest revelations given to us. 
When we began to realize what the Lord was doing and what we were seeing, we discovered the divine dialogue between the pierced Messiah and the penitent nation at his return. Hey, you guys remember this? We have people that have turned and been purified looking to see their Messiah and then hearing the very words of the ones that was pierced, speaking to his people with an everlasting love. This was derived by connecting the setting of Zechariah 12 and Jeremiah 31 together. If that's not clicking for you, go back and read both of those chapters. After looking at all of the available manuscripts, we have a summary of what the Messiah says upon his return to the bride nation Israel. Let's throw that on the screen. The Lord appeared to him, Israel, from afar. He says, I have loved you, Israel, with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you, Israel, in compassion. For I will build you, Israel, and you, Israel, will be built, O virgin Israel. Amen. Our fifth point of review, favor in the desert. It foreshadowed a second exodus, and this also came from verse 2, but part B. You guys see this slide? This slide should bring to your remembrance a 10 scripture stream that we gave you displaying the way in which the first exodus served as a pattern that will repeat in an even greater second exodus the key words to focus on in the slide are all of the clans of israel not just a few all 12 and find favor in the desert and it goes on to say again you will take up your tambourines Clearly, time will not permit us to teach that again or discuss a strange obsession that charismatic women have with tambourines. This is about a holy context referencing the Exodus. But if your interests were not stirred by these subjects, I'm not sure what to say other than you're dead. You didn't understand. Or you're just carnal and have no interest in the word of God. But we have better hopes for those of you in the room. These are interesting subjects. We know that it is not possible for you to hear about the Gulf of the Egyptian Sea being dried up. About Messiah striking the Euphrates River so that it is broken into seven small streams. And the leader of wickedness being cleaved from head to thigh and you not be stirred in your soul. Not LCM. That kind of stuff excites you. Our sixth point of review. The Good Shepherd discusses the Exodus. Man, this was special. We connected the imagery of the God who comes on the clouds with the Good Shepherd that Ezekiel 34 promised on a day of clouds so that you could consider an alternative understanding of the conversation that Jesus... Moses and Elijah were having in Luke 9. You may remember this slide. Some of your Bibles say departure. The actual word in Greek is exodus. It means exactly what you would think it means. It is an exodus from a location, as in the departure out of Egypt. Now, we're going to move to point seven, but you should see how these things are building into a narrative. Seven had amazing revelation overtones. We looked at that in Jeremiah 31, 11 through 12 
where there was no more sorrow coming from the people. The overtones of Jeremiah are strongly reflected in the book of Revelation. Much like the newer covenant, these promises have Israel as the recipient, and it was a surprise that anyone else would have the privilege of participating in them. Let's put this slide on the screen and consider what we've just said. Revelation 21, <clears throat> 2 through 4. You see, there's a bride, beautifully dressed, and verse 4 picks up. It says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Saints, the original context of that is Israel. Yeah. But you have had an opportunity to be included in that special promise. Yeah. As we go on, and the, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit. Anybody recognize that number? Yeah. Yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Twelve crops, and then the leaves heal the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. Look, that seventh point of review is integral to your understanding tonight. And it'll help you make sense of one of the most mysterious verses in all of the Bible. Are you ready to get into the text tonight? Uh, yes. Do you want to understand a verse that you can't find a commentary on anywhere that gets it right? Oh, yes. What a privilege it is to have these kinds of study times Amen. together. Amen. We're going to pray. Then Miss Jennifer is going to read all of 30 and 31. We know that that's lengthy. We know that it's hard to sit in seats and just listen. But we want you to hear this stuff again and again and again so that next week when we get to the newer covenant, you have some idea what the newer covenant is standing on. I'll give you a hint. It's not so that you can die and go to heaven. That's not a part of the new covenant at all. It never has been. And by next week, you'll be able to define 28 points that have to be included in your understanding of the newer covenant. Are you ready to pray? Who's going to do it? Amen. Loud and proud, Grandma. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Write in a book all the words I have spoken to you. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring my people, Israel, and Judah back from captivity and restore them to the land I gave their forefathers to possess, says the Lord. These are the words the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. This is what the Lord says. Cries of fear are heard, terror, not peace. And see, ask and see, can a man bear children? Then why do I see every strong man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor, wow. every face turned deathly pale? How awful that day will be. None will be like it. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob, but he will be saved out of it. In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will break the yoke off their necks, and I will tear 
off their bonds. No longer will foreigners enslave them. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. Do not be dismayed, O Israel, declares the Lord. I will surely save you out of a distant place, your descendants from the land of their exile. Jacob will again have peace and security, and no one will make him afraid. I am with you, and I will save you, declares the Lord. Though I am completely destroyed all the nations among which I scatter you, I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you, but only with justice. I will not let you go unt entirely unpunished. This is what the Lord says. Your wound is incurable, your injury beyond healing. There is no one to plead your cause, no remedy for your sore, no healing for you. All your allies have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. I have struck you as, as an enemy would and punished you as would the cruel, because your guilt is so great and your sins so many. Why do you cry out over your wound, your pain that has no cure? Because of your great guilt and many sins, I have done these things to you. But all who devour you will be devoured. All your enemies will go into exile. Those who plunder you will be plundered. All who make spoil of you, I will despoil. But I will restore you to health and heal your wounds, declares the Lord. Because you are, are called an outcast, Zion for whom no one cares. This is what the Lord says. I will restore the fortunes of Jacob's tents, and I have compassion on his dwellings. The city will re be rebuilt on her ruins, and the palace will stand in its proper place. From them I will come songs of thanksgiving and sound of rejoicing. I will add to their numbers, and they will not be decreased. Amen. I will bring them honor, and they will not be disdained. Their children will be in the days of old, and their community will be established before me. I will punish all who oppress them. Their leaders will be will their, leader. their leader will be one of their own. Their ruler will arise from among them. I will bring him near, and he will come close to me. For who is he who will devote himself to be close to me, declares the Lord. So you will be my people, and I will be your God. See the storms of the Lord will burst out in wrath, and a driving wind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes in the purposes of, heart, in, of his heart. In the days to come, you will understand this. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they will be my people. This is what the Lord says. The people who survive the sword will find favor in the desert. I will come to give rest to Israel. The Lord appeared to us in the past, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. I will build you up again, and you will be rebuilt, O virgin Israel. Again, you will take up your tambourines and go out to dance with the joyful. Again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The farmers will plant them and enjoy their fruit. There will be a day when watchmen cry out on the hills of Ephraim, Come, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. This is what the Lord says. Sing with joy for Jacob. Shout for the foremost of the nations. Make your praises heard and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble. 
because I am Israel's father, Amen. and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come out and shout for joy in the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the oil, young of the flock and herds. They will be like well-watered garden, and they will sow no more, they, and they will sorrow no more. The maids will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of their enemy. They will return from the land of the enemy. So their hope is in your future, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. I have surely heard Ephraim's moaning. You disciplined me like an unruly calf, and I have been disciplined. Restore me, and I will return, because you are the Lord my God. After I strayed, I repented. After I came to understanding, I beat my breast. I was ashamed and humiliated because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I have yeah. great compassion for him, declares the Lord. Set up road signs, put up guideposts, take note of the highway, the road that you take. Return, O virgin Israel, return to your towns. How long will you wander, O unfaithful daughter? The Lord will create a new thing on earth. A woman will surround a man. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. When I bring them back from captivity, the people of the land of Judah and its towns will once again use their word. Again, will use these words. The Lord bless you, O righteous dwelling, O sacred mountain. People will live together in Judah and all of its towns, farmers and those who move about with their flocks. I will refresh the weary and satisfy the saints. At the saints, at, at this I awoke and looked around. My sheep had been, my sleep had been pleasant to me. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will plant the house of Israel, the house of Judah, with the offspring of men and animals, just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down, and to overthrow, destroy, and bring disaster. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, people will no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for his own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. 
From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will their descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me. This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be scattered out, will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city will be rebuilt, rebuilt from me from the tower of Hanel to the corner gate. The measuring line will stretch from their straits to the hill of Gareb and then to turn to Goa. The whole valley where dead bodies and ashes are thrown and all of the terraces out to the Kidron Valley on the east bar of the corner of the house of the horse gate will be holy to the Lord. The city will never again be uprooted or demolished. We're going to get into all kind of amazing things tonight. I want you to notice that that passage does end with a holy city, though. And there's a refrain throughout it. They will be my people and I will be their God. It's unnecessary to redefine the people every bit as it would be unnecessary to redefine the word God. <laughs> I mean, these are clearly defined throughout the Bible. We're not talking about some other people every bit as much as we're not talking about some other God. We're talking about Israel and Israel's God. For some context to keep continuity, we're going to pick up in verse 14, but we're going to begin expounding in verse 15. I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. All right, so we read this last week, and we realized this is a promise in the Peshat that must take place. There's no ambiguity here. It is such a good promise that God is making to Israel, such an overwhelmingly encouraging promise in the midst of disaster that it invokes a predicated response. It's in the middle of a grave situation, so it's like, how do we respond to that? Our text tonight picks up with a metaphoric objection that is the predicated response. You're going to see, or the, the predicted response. You're going to see the people responding to what God just said. Now, we're going to read about Rachel here, but there's something you need to know. Rachel has been buried for around 1,400 years by this point. Rachel, the wife of Jacob, has been buried for 1,400 years, but she is envisioned as weeping in disbelief that this amazing promise can still come to pass in the coming verses. Y'all catch the context? We just had 4th of July. Our, our national documents begin when in the course of human history it becomes necessary to dissolve the political bonds that once tied us. This would be a little bit like saying George Washington can be heard crying right now over what's going on in the United States. That is the sense in which this is happening. And a beautiful promise is being given and there is the imagined response of Rachel crying who can't believe that it could be true. That's where we're picking up. So look at the response in verse 15 to what God just said in verse 14. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, 
visual is, is that she's mourning, she's weeping. She cannot be comforted because her children are no more. The Lord has been forecasting something even more imaginable than the southern tribes needed. This is what this verse is about. Not about the southern tribes, but about something that is even greater, even more unimaginable. He's been saying that even the northern tribes would be reunited and restored with the southern tribes as one nation. If it seems impossible for Judah to envision salvation and restoration, what do you think it was like for the northern tribes? It, it was even more impossible for the northern tribes to be able to envision that salvation. They haven't been a nation for almost 200 years at this point. They, they experienced Assyria, and now they're experiencing Babylon. They, they're, they're like a tennis ball going back and forth. Assyria here, then, oh no, the next great power, and now they're in captivity to somebody else. So in light of the spiritual artistry of the book, Rachel is viewed as weeping because she is the progenitor of the northern tribes. They have already gone into captivity under the Assyrians. That's why we're talking about Rachel here, because we're speaking about the northern tribes. The same dispersed northern tribes in the Assyrian regions were swallowed in the Babylonian captivity. In other words, she is seen as weeping because of the impossibility of their situation. To capture an overview of what God is forecasting, we're going to remind you of Ezekiel's prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 37, and I'm going to start in verse 11 with us. As you guys are getting ready to hear Ezekiel 37, 11, there's a pretty common misunderstanding. The northern tribes went into captivity in Assyria, and the southern tribes went into captivity in Babylon, and those things occurred between 720 B.C. and 586 B.C. That's only partially right. What you need to understand is that everybody who went into an Assyrian captivity also got swallowed up by Babylon who displaced Assyria. So it's like they got swallowed by a fish that got swallowed by another fish. And God is trying to comfort Rachel metaphorically. But she can't be comforted because it looks so impossible. In other words, she was like most of our theologians today. She didn't think it was possible. <laughs> Ezekiel says it is possible. Amen. So we're speaking about Rachel here because the northern tribes are in view. But as we go to Ezekiel 37, we get a more complete view of where the Lord is aiming. Verse 11 says, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Somebody say, the whole house of Israel. The whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. No hope! Wow, that sounds like some of our theologians today. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. How impossible does that sound? Especially in the time of Ezekiel. That must sound like an absolute impossibility. We're going to get to that here in a moment. Do you mean to tell me, Nick, that after people have been cut off, it could be unthinkable that God could graft them in again? <laughs> okay. Maybe a little Romans 9, 10, and 11 should be rolling through your mind. 
Verse 13, then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. And I have done it, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take a stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. Southern. Southern tribe. Then take another stick of wood and write on it, Ephraim's stick belonging to Joseph and all the house of Israel associated with him. Who is the mother of Joseph? Rachel. Rachel. Amen. You guys are getting it. Verse 17. Join them together into one stick so that they will become one in your hand. Verse 18. When your countrymen ask you, won't you tell us what you mean by this? Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in Ephraim's hand, and of the Israelite tribes associated with him, and join it to Judah's stick, making them a single stick of wood, and they will become one in my hand. Hold before their eyes the sticks you have written on, and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land. So in reality, if we back up a little bit, are we only talking about the northern tribes? Or are we talking about all of Israel? All All the tribes of Israel, the ten in the north and the two in the south. There will be one king over them, and they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. That's incredible. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offenses. For I will save them from all their sinful backsliding, and I will cleanse them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them. And they will all have one shepherd. Mm -hmm. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant, Jacob. Yeah, Jacob is mentioned here because Jacob is the father of all of the tribes. Holistically. Lost my place for a moment. There it is. They will live in the land I gave to my servant, Jacob. The land where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers. And I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. And I will be their God. Now, if this passage seems impossible to you, then we have a warning for you tonight. It's easier to reunite Israel than it is to graft in the Gentile nations to Messiah. See, what we're speaking in here is easier for the Lord to do than to say, somebody who is never a part, Gentile nations, you guys can be grafted in. Be warned if you're thinking that this is a seeming impossibility. We serve the God of the impossibility. We serve the God of the impossible. And Peyton is going to speak to us about that. As Peyton hands these out, I want to bring your attention to verse 26. Will you put it back on the screen for a second? 
I will make a covenant of peace with them. Anybody want to guess what that's a reference to? It's the same covenant we're about to get to in Jeremiah, and we've actually been talking about for a long time. Yeah. It's a covenant that had not existed before, and that all of the other covenants were leading up to. I want you to know that everywhere that the new covenant is being referenced in all of the Bible, Israel is in view. It was a mystery that we were a part of it at all. All of the promises are given to them, which is exactly what Romans 9 says. And we are co-heirs, but we need to know what it is we're co-heirs of. And more than that, you can't be a co-heir if they are not an heir. Okay? Peyton's going to take us through some scriptures on the concept that he is the God of the impossible. We really just need to stretch a faith muscle a little bit because we're in this time period where it looks like there are more Gentiles than there should be and not as many Jews as there should be. It may look impossible to you, but the entirety of the Bible is promising one outcome. If you turn in your Bibles to Genesis 18, verses 13 through 14, let me know when you're there. Chris Riasora, can you read it with all the might that you have? When you get there. similar to God saying Ephraim is my son and by Ephraim he actually means Ephraim, Ephraim not some other imagined group of people passages and each of these are going to relate to the same theme that we serve a God of the impossible that when he says something in the Peshat we don't need to look for a redefined spiritual equivalent Bob Rosales if you would get Jeremiah 32 26 through 27 who's going to be next Abambola get Proverbs 21 30 through 31 Habibi get Matthew 17 20 for me then uh, Adam Cora, you get Matthew 19, 26. Let's see who's next. Rob, if you get Luke 1, 35 through 37, then I'll round us out for the time being. 
Go ahead and pick up in Jeremiah, Paul, when you get there. Verse 26 and 27. Then the Lord, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Man, I, I, I love this kind of content. This is God himself saying, is anything too hard for me? Does it really matter what the subject is that we're discussing when he says that? No. But just for the sake of it, I feel like it's worth highlighting that even Jeremiah is having difficulty grasping that the Lord is going to physically restore the land of Israel to Israel. And then he says, and yet the Lord's answer is anything too hard for me. The content of this passage is about a deed of purchase for the land while it's being destroyed. Jeremiah himself is wrestling with this, but God affirms no matter what it is you see, nothing is too hard for me. Yeah. Who has Proverbs 21? Does, does verse 30? There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. When the Lord has planned to do something, it happens. This is one of the many reasons that it's so important for you to grasp the Bible as a story of the people, the place, and the plan of God's redemption as an Israel-centric story. Redefining it, reimagining it, allegorizing it is all an offense to the omnipotence of God. It's like saying, you said that, but you couldn't have meant that because I don't think you can do that. Okay? Let's do Matthew 17, 20. When the disciples were unable to accomplish the will of the Father, they were trying to cast out a demon in this passage, and they were unable to do it. This was Jesus' rebuke to the disciples. And you've got to ask yourself how ridiculous would it have been for everybody to stand around and look at Jesus' disciples and say that they couldn't do it. He would rebuke them too, just like he would rebuke any theologian that says his sons of Israel can't accomplish the will of the Father. We don't need reinterpretation. We need more faith in what God's word actually says about his chosen sons, Israel. Matthew 19, 26. Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. This is one of my favorites right here. The subject matter is a rich man and Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He asks them, hey, you believe that a rich man can be saved? If you do, then why should it be difficult to believe that Ephraim will be reunited, restored, and saved along with Israel? If that's possible, and the Lord says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible, then absolutely Ephraim can and will be saved. You know, many scholars throughout history have taken this passage from Jeremiah 31 and these scriptures and they've taken it as a hint that, hey, Gentiles can be saved. But we want to go back to the Bashad in this verse and drive the point home. Jeremiah is literally speaking about Ephraim being saved. Yeah. Whatever other conclusions that you draw from it, it cannot be to the detriment of the Bashat level of the scripture that it's Ephraim who will be saved. Come on. Right. 
These promises are not fulfilled in Gentiles. They refer to Rachel's actual children before they apply to anybody else. What about Luke 1, verse 35? 35 through 37. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born, to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said that to be barren is in her sixth month. Come on. For nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible. Every facet of faith in the God of Israel you have to have a willful suspension of disbelief. Why? So that you learn to trust him. Amen. Nothing is impossible with the God of Israel. Amen. Now, as we pick back up in Jeremiah, we are aware that some of you have questions about Matthew 2.18. Yeah. The point of Matthew's <laughs> use of this text is that it's in impossible situations like the slaughter of innocent children. God's plan for Israel will not be thwarted. It cannot be stopped. He is the God of the impossible. This is even more profound if you consider that the slaughter is taking place near her burial place in Bethlehem. Let's look at God's instruction to the metaphorical objection of Rachel to the impossibility of the situation. So as we pick up in 16 through 17, just reiterate what Peyton just said. We're going to look at God's instruction to the metaphorical objection of Rachel. So the objection to the idea that he can restore these tribes is about to be addressed. Can, I, can I help you all with the tension in this a little bit? Why does Matthew quote it? Why can none of the scholars seem to come up with a cogent answer for why Matthew quotes this? Imagine that you're reading Jeremiah 30 and 31 and you're an Israeli. And so you're waiting for the moment when... You are God's bride. When you're brought back from every place on earth, when there are no longer any more Gentile oppressors, and you just saw the slaughter of the innocents. Doesn't that seem like the same kind of hopeless setting? But God's plan was not thwarted because Jesus was not killed. That is why Matthew is saying it's fulfilled. He's saying it in the same context that Jeremiah said it in. In every impossible situation, where it looks like it cannot occur and you want to weep and cannot be comforted, read the next verse. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your works will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return to the land of the enemy, so there is hope for your future. I love the way that the Lord definitively restates his own promise just to make sure that all doubt has been clear. No difficulty, no discipline, no disaster will ever thwart God's promise to all Israel in the connotative sense, both houses, every single tribe. No tribe was ever completely lost and all will be fulfilled. Notice the constant revelation overtones in these passages. You hear the words, no more weeping, no more tears, the absence of sorrow that is being wiped away. See, those passages in Revelation, they're in the context of the travailing of Israel throughout history to maintain hope that what God said he would do, he would do. That's why the book of Revelation is closing with no no more tears, no more sorrow, because God has accomplished for Israel what he said he would do 
for Israel. Does that make sense to you? I'm going to refrain from elaborating too far because you will see this representation grow. There is no time that the New Testament authors quote something like their eyes were blind or their ears were hearing but never actually hearing when the context of it isn't an eventual salvation and restoration to this place. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, every one of them prophesied times of hardening, but they always lead to these revelation overtones. Let's go ahead and get 18 and 19. You are my Lord and my God reminds me of Thomas after he didn't understand. These these words that we just read, the preceding words, they're the collective thoughts of the northern tribes expressing their repentance over the rebellion that defined their tribes prior to the the reunification of Israel. So what, what this verse is doing in the same way that Rachel is personified even though she's 1,400 years earlier, here a singular name, Ephraim, is being personified of all of the northern tribes. And God is predicting in advance what their response will be when he appears to them and he speaks to them. Notice that in the passage, God is seen as listening to Ephraim's moaning. Ephraim was a son being disciplined. He's not an enemy. He's a son. But his restoration and return are anticipated. Look, tonight there's a lot of sickness in the room. It's been raining unceasingly. (laughs) But this should give you hope for some of the Gentile sons in this house that are so often wayward. God hears his sons moaning even when they're being disciplined. And he anticipates their return. That's the point of the discipline. If he didn't want them to return, he would just annihilate them. Maybe the writer of Hebrews had that in mind in the 12th chapter. But Hosea also foresaw Ephraim's repentance, and he describes it in similar terms. Can we all go to Hosea 5? We're going to read chapter 5, verses 13 through the 6th chapter and 3rd verse. This is parallel. It should be read with the same kind of setting and understanding as Jeremiah is. Somebody say there when you're there. Let me know you're alive. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah, his sores, then Ephraim turned to Assyria and sent to the great king for help. But he is not able to cure you. Not able to heal your sores. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim. Like a great lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. Then I will go back to my place. Until. Somebody say until. Until. They admit their guilt. And. They will seek my face. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. Come, 
Let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. Amen. Connotatively, whole house, both houses. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will restore us. That we, we, both houses of Israel, may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will appear. He will come to us, the houses of Israel, like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Hosea is prophesying 150 years before Jeremiah. Jeremiah had the benefit of contemplating all that Hosea had said. Both men had the revelation that Ephraim, who was viewed as impossibly lost in idolatry, would be saved along with Judah. Both men, Jeremiah and Hosea, they predicted Ephraim's repentance, reunification, and restoration with Judah. Both men... Hosea and Jeremiah said this would happen and they relate it to the appearance of the Messiah who will come like the rising sun. It seems that they had a kind of storm cloud view of the Lord's coming in mind. Where Messiah says to both houses of Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Look, the next few verses. Or the Father. Somebody say, the Father. The Father. Father. Carlos, say, Father of Glory. Father of Glory. Where the Father of Glory is responding to Ephraim's repentance. They did not repent in the Assyrian captivity. They did not repent before the Babylonian captivity. Most of Israel has not repented today. But the same prophets that tell us of a new covenant tell us that Ephraim will repent. This is a little bit like picking the shortest guy in the room and saying he will slam dunk a basketball. If the shortest guy in the room can do it, then the tallest guy in the room ought to know that God can do it to him too. God starts with the one that seems the most impossible and says, I'm going to do it for him. And I'm going to do it for his brother. Amen. Let's pick up in verse 20. It's not Ephraim, my dear son, the child in whom I delight. All right, so we can rule out the idea that fatherhood is not found in the Older Testament right there. (laughs) Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Mm. Therefore, my heart yearns Mm. for him. What? My heart yearns for him. God's heart yearns for him. Don't tell me he can't be found. Don't tell me he's somebody else. God's heart yearns for him. Do you think God doesn't know who he is? I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. Set up road signs. Put up guideposts. Take note of the highway, the road that you take. Return, O virgin Israel. Return to your towns. Now, there's a message in this for... uh all of us Gentiles. And I, I just want to pause on it for a second. And then we're going to go back to the original context of Ephraim. 
But listen to the words, though I often speak against him. This is a rhetorical question, so nobody raise any hands. And don't point at your neighbor. Anybody ever feel like you're often spoke against? Well, that's not a feeling that God intends you to have. He says, I still remember him. Meaning the most corrected out of the bunch. God still has a remembering of that person. That person is not lost in God's mind. In fact, the correction is so that they can become who he intends for them to become. Why is God choosing Ephraim here? Because they're the worst of all the tribes. This is displaying God's character to every other tribe right here saying, if I do this for the worst, what will I do for all the other tribes in my nation? Man, you ever feel like the worst? God still remembers you. But the Peshat of these verses clearly say that the father's heart yearns for Ephraim. Amen. No matter what you believe this hints at, and there are many theologians who say this is Gentiles. It explicitly says Ephraim. Yeah. And it takes away from the beauty if it meant something else, wouldn't it? Yeah. The current situation is the worst tribe. That's what God means in his word. The northern tribes did not go away in the annals of history. We have demonstrated that numerous times. No lost ten tribes. No lost northern tribes. They're still there. They were always in the yearning of the hearts of the father's heart. And honestly, would you ever believe that a father would let his children go lost? No. 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 A father's heart would be there yearning, wanting to restore them, even though they got into a double captivity. Yeah. Now, I want to point out something else. It's really interesting to note that the language of verse 21 is reminiscent of what we have studied and things we have learned about cities of refuge. I want to show you a map, and on this map, we are listing all of the cities of refuge. Do you see how Israel's broken up into three sections? Yes. We have a northern section, we have a middle section, and a third section. Now, in the middle of those sections, going from top to bottom, there is the Jordan River. You see how on each side there is a city in each section. You are seeing that? Yes. There were a total of six cities of refuge in Israel. They were evenly dispersed east of the Jordan, west of the Jordan, and the upper, middle, and lower parts of Israel. Now that you can see this on a map, you see how they're dispersed? Let's take a look at how Deuteronomy describes their development. Who wants to read a couple passages? Rob, you get Deuteronomy 19, verses 1 through 3. Hayes, loud and proud in the back, Deuteronomy 19, verses 8 through 9. So read Deuteronomy 19, verses 1 through 3, when you get there. When the Lord your God has destroyed the nations whose land he has given you, and when you have driven them out and settled in their towns and houses, then set aside for yourself. Wait, wait, wait. Set aside for who? Are there only three cities of refuge? No. no! Keep reading. Go to verse 8, whoever has it. If the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he promised on oath to your forefathers and gives you the whole land he promised them because you carefully follow all these laws I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk always in his ways, 
two passages clearly state for us about how these cities of refuge were established. Now, these cities of refuge were for Israelites that were guilty of bloodshed, but bloodshed that happened in ignorance. Ephraim is repenting because the nation behaved as an unruly calf, but now they have been brought to revelation and understanding. Cities of refuge had to have roads built to them. They were marked with clear signage. Did you guys remember that from verse 21? Yeah. It said, set up road signs, put up guideposts, take note of the highway, the road that you take, return. This is the parallel that we're drawing between these verses and the verses from Deuteronomy 19 regarding the cities of refuge. This passage is drawn from that imagery so that Ephraim is envisioned as having his crimes covered by the high priest. Ephraim's crimes are going to be covered by the high priest just like when somebody flees to these cities of refuge and the priest there evaluates the situation and covers those crimes. Bethany, would you put uh, uh, Jeremiah 31 verse 21 on the screen for us? Set up road signs, put up guideposts, take note of the highway, the road that you take. Return virgin Israel to your towns. Is Israel actually a virgin? Only if he's cleansed to them. The truth is, is that Ephraim is guilty of terrible crimes, numerous crimes, much like the apostle Paul was. But he was shown mercy because he did them in ignorance. He did not understand that he was opposing God. That is how Ephraim is being viewed. And God wants Ephraim's path of return to be marked with signs and guideposts and highways. That is exactly how you identified cities of refuge. And the only way that you were saved in the city of refuge is if you got there and the high priest was alive. This is hinting at the role of Jesus as the great high priest who is responsible for Ephraim's reunification, their pardon, and your release when the high priest dies. We have one who died and yet lives forever. This allows the houses of Israel to both be pardoned and be released. An additional thing that is worth bearing in mind in this moment. You have been taught your entire life that Luke 15, specifically verse 20, is about you. Nope. It was never about you. It was also never about the prodigal son. It was about the nature of a good father. You remember in our teaching last week that he saw them from afar? It's almost as if there is a parable about a man with two sons... One who went into captivity first to sin, but was watching on the porch, putting out marking signs. Wanted to make sure that one day when he knew he would come home, that he could find his way home. And he saw him from a long way off because his heart never stopped yearning for that wayward son. But in the end, they came back together and the whole house was reunited. Before we go to verse 22, which we're going to, and 22 is going to be... Something you've never heard before. So if you've been bored up till now, you should wake up in this verse. What is at stake, and I know because I've been studying for 28 years, is when you read something like Luke 15, 
You assume and you look for you in the passage. When what we really must do is put it in its Israeli context first and then extrapolate out anything that it may mean to you. There is no book that this is more true of than the book of Revelation. And when you read it, you imagine all kind of things. New nations called the church, two brides, one that's the church, segmentation everywhere, and you forget that the book itself was written by a Jew to Jews about all of the prophecies that have been given to the nation of Israel. There are 400 verses in the book of Revelation that directly refer to more than 800 verses that were exclusively written to Israel. What we're about to get to will help you understand verse 22. And I got to tell you, it's beautiful and it will unlock some of the most enigmatic chapters in the book of Revelation for you. But that probably doesn't interest you, right? We're going to read verse 22, and Vincent's going to read that for us, and then we're going to help you set up this passage in a way that you will understand it in a completely different way. Who's ready for that? Okay, Vincent, let's go with verse 22. How long will you wander, O unfaithful daughter? The Lord will create a new thing on earth. A woman Somebody say new thing. New thing. Now, as we're reading this, who's a little bit puzzled by that verse? A woman surrounding a man? What in the world could that possibly mean? The only context I could think of was not something you talk about in church. But that's not what it means. We probably can't talk about that, but thank the Lord that we have a different kind of interpretation for you tonight. Now, honestly speaking, this verse has puzzled interpreters since it was written. I mean... They are everywhere on the subject. There are so many different opinions about what this verse could possibly mean. It's not that it's difficult to define the Hebrew words. You're going to see that in just a moment. There's only three at play in the phrase, a woman will surround a man, which is what we're going to focus on right here. It is difficult for the interpreters to understand the collective meaning of them that is being conveyed. So we're going to put these three Hebrew words on the screen and we're going to walk through their three meanings. Are you guys ready? Here's the first one. It's on a slide for you. Nekeva. Nekeva. It means exactly what you think that it means. A woman or a female. So we had a woman will surround a man. The first word is nekeva and it means a woman, a female. There's no argument from anyone that it means exactly what it says that it means. Now, it doesn't mean a virgin birth. It doesn't mean that Mary's in view. It doesn't mean any of the ridiculous things that some of your Bible commentators might say that it means. It actually just means woman. And if you have ever read up on any commentary on this particular passage, Possibly the vast majority of those commentators will say, hey, this has to do with a virgin birth. This has to do with a baby in the belly of Mary. This particular word does not have anything to do with a female that is a virgin. We're simply speaking about a woman here. Let's have that next slide. Here we go. (coughs) This is the difficult word of the three. It's the middle word, 
It's the word that in the NIV is translated as surround. You can see the definition on the screen here. It says, go in a circle, surround, turn, change. This is definitely the word where the controversy begins in the commentators. Now, we want to show a slide here, and this is going to be surprising and shocking to most of you. I don't think we've ever shown a slide quite like this one. It looks like a rainbow up on the screen. It looks like Skittles. This is a slide that is representing how the NIV deals with the 160 uses of this particular Hebrew word in the Tanakh. Wow. Yeah, it, it kind of looks like the reading rainbow here. It's a little overwhelming. The English translations use the flexibility in the word Teshuvah to come up with all kinds of definitions. The woman will surround, encompass, protect, shelter, return, embrace the man. It makes it difficult to translate. For now, let's leave that controversy where it is and move on to the next word. Some of you may notice this. The word giver. Come on! Giver! Giver! A strong man. Most of you are familiar with it. A valiant man is another way for it to be translated. The ironic thing is that we are in possession of a dynamic translation of the original Hebrew what? that is a thousand years older than any complete Hebrew manuscript containing this verse. Wow. That is, of course, the Septuagint, the LXX. <laughs> Here it is on a slide. Let's take a look. Starting from the top left. How long will you turn back, dishonored daughter? For the Lord has created salvation for a fresh planting. Now, if you'd like to see this translated without the Greek notations, because that can be a, a little bit overwhelming, we put it on a separate slide for you to help you read along. Now, in verse 22, how long will you turn back, dishonored daughter? For the Lord has created salvation for a fresh planting. People will go about in deliverance. There it is. Oh, come on. So in the view of the Hebrew men, Hebrew-speaking Jews, that translated the original Hebrew manuscripts into Greek, which we refer to collectively as the LXX, this verse is about the Lord creating salvation, a fresh planting, and people that are delivered. Hmm. Hey, remember, the LXX is a translation. It's, it's almost the alone. NLT of the ancient world. Yes. <laughs> But nope. it's not the message. <laughs> not, <laughs> not the message. And it is taken from original manuscripts. So then when they wanted to communicate to the Gentile world what a passage meant, this is a little bit like Cliff Notes. It's helping us go and figure it out. Now notice they don't mention a woman surrounding a man at all. You see it on the screen? No mention to it, no reference. They have simply written the bottom line of what they interpret that phrase to mean dynamically, like your NIV, a dynamic translation of what was literally stated in the Hebrew. Where this gets fun is examining how the vivid spiritual portrayal of the Hebrew is understood in connection with the specificity of the Greek text. So to put it in the context what I just said, Greek tends to be very specific, and that can be helpful sometimes. Hebrew is very vivid, colorful, and contains lots of meaning. We have an opportunity to look at both, and it paints a picture together that lends a more full understanding to our audience. When you don't understand something, read the volume of the scripture. 
and the broader narrative will help you. What we're about to do is look at the woman encompassing the man and see what it has to do with a fresh planting of salvation and deliverance for Israel. Those two translations almost look like they cannot be the same verse, don't they? But they are. And the context completely matches. And you're about to see in the scripture how it's derived. Would you like that? Yes. Let's take a look at Jeremiah 1, 9 through 10. I'm going to read it for you. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I have appointed you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and to overthrow. Pretty familiar so far? To build and to plant. Jeremiah's ministry was about uprooting and tearing down, but he was also given a vision of building and planting. See, when you read the book of Jeremiah and you get the idea that he's just prophesying about the Babylonian captivity, you're missing the second half. Mm -hmm. The culmination of everything that he's pointing to has something to do with a woman surrounding a man. And when the Hebrews are trying to explain that to Greek-speaking people, they drop the idiom altogether and say it has to do with a fresh planting, salvation, and deliverance for Israel. Now, do you remember this from chapter 30? This is Jeremiah 30. I'm going to begin in 18. We're going to just keep building context until you get where we're going. And I'm going to give you a giant hint. We're going to the book of Revelation. (laughs) Jeremiah 30, verse 18. This is what the Lord says. I will restore the fortunes of Jacob's tents and have compassion on his dwellings. The city will be rebuilt on her ruins. Building. And the palace will stand in its proper place. Look, all Jacob's sons are going to experience the compassion of the Lord. A city will be rebuilt in its proper place. Verse 19. From them will come songs of thanksgiving and the sound of rejoicing. I will add to their numbers and they will not be decreased. I will bring them honor and they will not be disdained. Whatever else Jeremiah is pointing to, there will be honor for all of Israel and they will no longer experience shame. Look at verse 20. Their children will be as in days of old. Come on. Their community will be established before me. I will punish all who oppress them. The tribes, they will be unified and there will be no more oppression. They will be unified as they once were before there was a national split. Fresh planting. Verse 21. Their leader. What do you suppose his name is, friends? Their leader will be one of their own. Their ruler will arise from among them. I will bring him near and he will come close to me. For who is he who will devote himself to be close to me, declares the Lord. A special leader would arise from the tribes of Israel. He would, John 1.18 style, be in the closest of relationships with Yahweh. And look at what verse 20 says. So you will be my people, and I will be your God. Come on. Everything that Jeremiah is pointing at, and part of the key to the answer of a woman will surround a man, and how is that a fresh planting of the Lord where they go about in salvation and deliverance? Part of that 
is that the whole thing is the day that he is their God and they are his people before the whole world. The whole Bible culminates in that kind of statement, and we're about to get to it. Would you be surprised to know that the LXX description of the fresh planting of salvation and deliverance and the Hebrew description of a woman that surrounds or encompasses a man, that they all come together in the last book of the Bible? The book of Revelation is an extrapolation of the book of Jeremiah. It is a further revelation of the book of Jeremiah. We have benefit that sages haven't had for centuries before Revelation was written. Would you like to read the key passages? Yeah. All right, I'm going to read to you from Revelation 21, verse 2 through 5, and listen to the Peshat here. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Oh, yeah. The what? The New York? No. The New Amsterdam? No. The New Mexico? No. The what? Almost like in, a, in its proper place. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. So is it a city or a bride? Yes. yes. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Where have you heard that before? That's right, Jeremiah. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Do you recognize that there will be no more sorrow? Where have you heard that before? He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I'm going to do a new thing. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Look at the moment in Revelation where salvation and deliverance have been achieved. The bride of God is also a city. This is restated in Revelation 21, later a couple verses down in verse 9 through 11. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God. So the bride and the city are the same as we see in this passage. Now look at where the throne of God and of the Lamb are in chapter 22, verse 1. Until recent times, brides were always women. Yeah. Just, just want to point that out. Until recent times, it was a pretty safe bet that if we had a bride, the bride was a woman. And in the case that the bride is a whole nation, well, let's look and see where the throne of the Lamb is. Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, 
yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The Listen to this. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. This throne that it's speaking of is the throne of the valiant man, as spoken in Jeremiah. The throne of the Gaver, the valiant mighty man, the Lamb of God. And where is it, church? It's in the middle of the city. A man is surrounded, encompassed, encircled by his bride nation. That is the city of God, Jerusalem. If you aren't getting this yet, we're going to help you put it together. But I want you to know not only is the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of the city, it's surrounded by 12 crop-producing groups. I can't imagine what that could be in the Bible. And it's for the whole healing of the world. Because when he has done for Israel what he said he would do for Israel, he then uses Israel to fix the rest of the world. That's a better way to look at the book of Revelation. But Nick's going to help us take it further. Wow. If you're not getting it completely yet, we're going to have Linton reread verse 22 for us, and then we're going to really start connecting some of these dots for you guys. How long will you wonder, O unfaithful daughter? The Lord will create a new thing on earth. A woman will surround a man. We are going to come to a time when the daughter... When the wife, when the bride, she's not going to be wandering anymore. Come on. There will be no more wandering for the bride of the Lamb. Also, it says the Lord will create a new thing on earth. The Lord will do this new thing on the earth. Something that has, listen to me, never happened before. A new thing. A brand new thing. The LXX, the Septuagint. It says that it will be a planting of both salvation and deliverance. You guys following that? Both of those aspects are going to be central to what the Lord is going to do in this new thing. The Hebrew says that it will be a woman, a.k.a. a bride, surrounding a man, a.k.a. a valiant, mighty savior of a man. The book of Revelation describes the bride like a city surrounding the throne of the Lamb on all sides. Come on. With the Lamb in the middle of that city. Come on, The descriptors in Revelation say, New Jerusalem and making everything new. That word new should immediately trigger in your mind what Jeremiah 31 is pointing to. And you know, there's another verse that has new thing in it in the NIV. And we wanted to point you to Isaiah 43 and read that with you. Come on. Isaiah 43, 19 through 21. See, I am doing a new thing. Yeah. Times have you guys heard that? <laughs> oh, he's going to do a new thing. Hey, guess what? He's doing a new thing. We want to be able tonight, tonight to put that in its proper context for Amen. you. The new thing that God is going to do is pointed at in Revelation 21 with all of these different aspects with his nation Israel. That's the new thing that Isaiah is prophesying about and pointing to the end of days. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way 
Don't you love when the Lord interprets it for you? Yes. <laughs> All right, let's go to verse 23. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. When I bring them back from captivity, the people in the land of Judah and its town, towns will once again use these words. The Lord bless you, O righteous dwelling, O sacred mountain. Man, O sacred mountain. You noticed earlier that in the book of Revelation, the people, the city, and the bride are all associated with being carried to a high mountain. Do you remember that? Yeah. Well, in case you don't, I want to read Revelation 21, 9 through 11 again to you. Yeah. It's almost ensure... like to understand the book of Revelation, you would need to know the promises given to Jeremiah. Yeah. We're just going to call this the deep imprinting phase. Over and over again, we're going to go from Revelation to Jeremiah until we see the full picture. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and that obviously happened in the first century, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high. Wow. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The end result of what we just read in 22, the Lord says in 23, when I bring them back from captivity, the people in the land of Judah and in its towns will once again use these words. The Lord bless you, O righteous dwelling, O sacred mountain. You've been taught to read the book of Revelation as being about you. 
disconnected from the reality of the scriptures that it is drawn from. You and I were a mysterious inclusion. The whole story is about the reunification, the restoration, the glorification of all Israel as the bride of Christ on his mountain. Why don't we go ahead and pick up in verse 24 and see a few more connections. Is that all right? Yeah. I mean, y'all aren't asleep, huh? No. People will live together in Judah and all its towns, farmers and those who move about with their flocks. I will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint Wow. That seems like such an innocuous verse, doesn't it? Again, if we read the book of Revelation, there may be something in it that is expanding upon that idea. Maybe. And it's not migrant workers at Home Depot. <laughs> Revelation 21.6. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. Now that you've heard that, let me read verse 24 of chapter 31 again. People will live together in Judah and all its towns. Farmers and those who move about with their flocks. I will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint. Come on. An Israel-centric interpretation is the key to understanding your Bible. Once you have this uh, revelation, it may change the way that you read every passage in your Bible. Can I give you another one that really has a beautiful hint in it? Let's go to Psalm 46. Verses 4 and 5. Because the new Jerusalem, the bride surrounding the man, it's not a new concept. You just have to understand the painting as it's being described in the Bible as opposed to some kind of technical manual. Psalm 46, verses 4 through 5. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Did anybody read Revelation 21 and see a city with a river down the middle and a man on a throne in the center surrounded by his bride? There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. I'm sorry, did did I read that too fast? God is within her. A woman will surround a man. What do you think that says about the deity of Christ, by the way? God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Now, this is fun. The sons of Korah wrote those words 1,000 years before John the Revelator wrote about the city that is the bride with the Lord enthroned in the middle of his people, which is the city. That's kind of a beautiful remez on a woman surrounding a man, don't you think? Yes. God is within her, the city, the bride, Israel. And she now will never again be subject to falling. Amen. As we move to our final verses, Jeremiah is going to awake. He's going to remember his present surroundings. 
You remember what the present surroundings were? Destruction. Pregnant women's bellies ripped open. Rapes. Murders. It's going to put his dream in an entirely new light, don't you think? Dreaming about the final restoration of his people. And he wakes up to see their present reality. This is verse 26. At this, I awoke and looked around. My sleep had been pleasant to me. Oh, I bet it was. I bet that sleep was the best sleep Jeremiah had ever had while he was in prison. He wanted to go back to sleep and dream that again. Look, the reality on the ground. He awakes and looks around. He's seeing the city that is to come. And then he awakes and looks around. The reality on the ground is total destruction. And the dream is the vision of hope for the future. Yeah. This is really what makes the man, Jeremiah, who he is. He's seeing with his eyes complete destruction all around him. But he has a vision from the word of God and the spirit of God what God will do. This is what makes Jeremiah who he is. You know, perhaps we need to, like Jeremiah, to start walking by faith rather than by what we see. Perhaps we ought to believe what God is showing us in our visions, dreams, promises, the words that he's proclaiming to you, Amen. rather than what we see with our eyes, and we might actually get to stand oh, up come on. That's with good. Jeremiah on that day. You may even have to put money down on a title deed to gutter real estate because you had a starry view of what the future of that place will be. You might actually have to prophesy destruction to a people for years, knowing that God is calling you to plant and build after those years are over. Look, just in case you are particularly stubborn, and we hope you're not, and having a really hard time grasping at what we have been saying, God himself is going to sum up the meaning of the vision Jeremiah has had in verse 27. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will plant the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the offspring of men and of animals. Wait, look, could he say this anymore? Could he identify exactly what he's talking about any more than he is? Both houses of Israel and even the animal kingdom. Okay, you want to know what the millennial reign is initiated by? Come on. Both houses of Israel being reunited, being restored, even being glorified, and the animal kingdom as well. Do we get to do that? Of course. But that was a mysterious inclusion. That's not what the promise was about. And you can't be included in something that doesn't happen for them first. Just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down and to overthrow, to destroy and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. Come on, guys. Come on, guys. What a verse to end on tonight. There's definitely Indeed, going to be a new planting of salvation. LXX was right. LXX was right, and the Lord's declaring it in these final couple verses. The bride and the city of God that we went all the way down to Revelation to read with you tonight, called the New Jerusalem, it's going to surround the throne of the greatest giver that will ever exist. And it will literally result in a new earth. Restored. Yeah. 
a new heaven, purified from all rebellion. These promises hang upon the nation of Israel yeah. and no other nation. It's for them. It was always for them. It will always be for them. You cannot have a newer covenant in the coming verses without these promises being fulfilled in the Peshat for Israel. Next week, we're going to go over 28 points that are contingent on the newer covenant coming about in its fulfillment. You guys are going to see that. You can't have the newer covenant without all these promises being fulfilled for Israel. And not in some ethereal, spiritual kind of way. In the Peshat level. Amen. Jesus, first coming, was the conception. Where we are right now, it's the period of gestation. There will be labor pains after this. There will be terrible, terrible times. Then, Salvation will be birthed in and for Israel. And the whole world will be better for it. Israel's salvation will indeed affect every other nation on the planet. Isn't that right, Acts 2? Are you catching that the first coming of Jesus initiates a new covenant, but it does not complete the terms of the new covenant? Jesus himself said that in his last hours before being crucified. We will not drink of this cup together again until we do it anew in the kingdom of God. The first coming was a conception, and we are in the gestation period. Labor pains are to come, and it will birth salvation in and for Israel, and the whole world will be better for it. This is how an apostle can say, if they're stumbling, meant life for you. What on earth will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? It will complete the promises of the new covenant. In other words, you need two comings for the singular covenant of God called the new covenant. You need them. So with all respect to the preachers that have gone before us, They sold it way short. And the result of that is like making a copy of a beautiful painting on a Xerox copier. And then doing that for a couple thousand years until the image is so degraded, it does not bear the beautiful artistic marks of the original. And people are running around believing that we are the recipients of the new covenant. And all we need to do is believe on Jesus so we can die and go to heaven. And the new covenant has almost nothing to do with those kinds of statements at all. We want you to be on proper footing. And we want you to understand your Bibles rightly. It doesn't make our salvation smaller. It actually makes it much, much larger. We need you guys to understand something as we come to a close and uh, hand this over to your pastors. Up until about 70 years ago, There was no nation, no territory on a map that you could point to and say, this is Israel. You couldn't look at a map and say, that's the place where God's nation dwells. There were several thousand years where people read Jeremiah, read Revelation, and had to spiritualize everything that they read because they were faithless. They had to spiritualize it because they looked at a map and said, yeah, this doesn't exist today. 
There is no place that I can point to and say, this is Israel. This is where God's people are. They were scattered among the nations. Now that we've come to a point tonight where we've put Israel on its proper footing, where we have a, a revelation and a foundation of what this means for God's nation, we want to speak to your dreams tonight. Yeah. We want to speak to the things that you cannot point to and say, I can see the Lord doing this right here, right now. You know, there were so many years and so many times where nobody could do that. And what it produced was something twisted and corrupted, and it affected the entire world. What has the Lord spoken to you in your life for your future that is a dream that needs to be revived tonight? Something that you cannot see. Something that you cannot perceive with your mind's eye. Something that you can't feel in your emotions, but that you know that God said that it was going to come to pass. What is, what are some of those things in you tonight? Tonight we want to revive, we want to speak to those dreams inside of you. Verse 27 is a promise that the Lord made to his nation Israel, and it's something that we are promising you tonight. It's something that the character of God says. The days are coming, declares the Lord. Amen. Those days are going to come for you just like they have come and they will come for the nation of Israel. Get up and stand to your feet with us tonight. something in our life to be fulfilled in the future and we stand between the tension of what we see now and the hope of what yet will be man don't we find the encouragement of the unchanging nature of God's character yes. and his faithfulness to his covenant yes. with his people this is what we want you to be encouraged by tonight as Nick was giving that close it resonated in me and our heart for you. Man, don't rewrite the narrative of God's promises that he's spoken to your life because it's getting difficult today. Trust that he is the God who will bring it to fulfillment. You will find favor in the desert. He will give you hope for being reunited, being restored, being pardoned, and being glorified along with him. He is the God who fulfills his promises to his children. You have mezuzahs. You have years ahead of you of development and fulfillment of what God has already said. Man, don't give up. Go the opposite direction. Let praise come out of your mouth. Let a declaration that he is going to bring you to that fulfillment of the title deed that is inside of your hand. You can look around us and see the evidence that God is ever increasing the fulfillment of the promises given to us as a church. And he will continue to do it for generations. Let's pray together. Mighty God, you are faithful. You are ever faithful, God. What you have promised to Israel, you will bring about. You will demonstrate your everlasting love and compassion 
to your people. Lord, not only will you bring these things about, Lord, you will build, you will plant, Lord. We will see the entirety of the house of Israel be brought near to you, Lord. You will fulfill every good promise to them. Lord, and because we can trust in that, we know you will fulfill every good promise to us as well. Lord, let the faith of your people rise up because we serve a faithful God. There is never a word that you speak that you will not bring about, mighty one. Lord, we love you and we are trusting in you evermore. Lord, when we learn about your faithfulness, your compassion, your goodness to your people Israel, Lord, it brings us great confidence. Lord, it lets us know that the salvation and deliverance you have for us is more precious. It's even more than we could comprehend before. Lord, that you will open our eyes to the wonderful things found in your word. Lord, let all of this continue to grow. Continue to be planted deep within us, Lord, and be manifested within us. Lord, we are co-heirs, but your people are the heirs. Lord, it is our desire. Lord, we pray now for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray that your spirit be there, that your will will be fulfilled in every good purpose that you have. Lord, teach us. Teach us, Lord, the broader narrative of your word. Lord, you are doing something special in the team that presents, Lord, and in our heart, you are doing something special. Lord, we count it precious and say, Lord, continue to speak. Let the seeds of revelation that were given tonight, Lord, let it germinate within us. Let it grow within us, Lord. Let it be expounded by the watering of your spirit, even in each and every heart, Lord. We honor you and we thank you for this night. Lord, continue to have your way first in your people, Israel, and then to us. Lord, we honor you and thank you. And it's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen. Amen.